Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your coming. We're quite aware that you have not come back yet and all things are not set right, but they will be and you will come again. We long for the day when we will see you face to face, Lord Jesus, and we're thankful that in the meantime you've given us a reflection of yourself in your word. Scripture tells us it's a dim reflection of what we will see compared to the glory that awaits, but it is a true and real reflection, and it is indeed clear compared with what we would know of our own uh, knowing apart from your word. So Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us tonight to look into it, to see your glory, to behold you and who you are and what you've done, that we might be changed, that we might be strengthened, that our hope might be further secure as we wait for you to come again. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We were in Acts 20 just a few days ago on Sunday morning, looking at the second half of the chapter. And by the way, this coming Sunday, from this coming Sunday till Christmas, we will uh, we'll work through a short series that I'm calling Waiting for the King. We'll think about waiting for redemption, uh, waiting for victory, and waiting to see him. So we'll take a break from the book of Acts for a little bit uh, as we continue to think about his coming, that he did come and that he will come again. But we've got some unfinished business in the book of Acts tonight. Acts 20, as we saw on Sunday, contains Paul's final words in his tear-filled charge to the elders in Ephesus. Remember, if you were with us, that Paul reminded them of his example, especially his teaching and his understanding of trials. He instructed them about their charge over the church. He told them that they are shepherds who need to watch themselves and watch the flock and watch out for wolves. And then he commended them to God and gave a final word about not being motivated by greed or gain, but instead by giving of themselves to the Lord and to their people. Now, there's a whole lot there in those verses we looked at on Sunday in the second half of Acts 20. They are rich verses with diverse themes and a ton of implications. And so, as I said on Sunday, I planned for us tonight to come back to Acts 20 and to give some focus to a bit of Acts 20. And specifically, I had in mind verse 28. Just verse 28. Let's read it. Pay careful attention to yourselves, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God's word is a treasure trove of manifold glories, massive and minuscule glories, some, some glories small and detailed and precise enough that you'll miss if you don't slow down. Now, of course, you can slow down in God's word to such an extent that you miss the point of the passage. You miss the big picture. 
And so hopefully we haven't missed the point of this passage of Acts 20. We've already established Paul's primary point to strengthen these elders for their shepherding care of the church. But along the way, in this process of this rather long speech, seemingly in passing, Paul says something so profound in half of a sentence or less that it deserves our careful attention and slow attention tonight. Just look at the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 words of verse 28 again. Notice, the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, while Paul's purposes for these words is to provide weight and motivation for the elders in what he's instructing instructing them to do, that's why they're to pay careful attention to the flock and to care for the church. It's because it's the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. But in the process of making that argument, Paul states for us a few doctrinal theses which raise for us one or more theological questions or dilemmas and in the end provides great encouragement not just for the elders of a church but for the whole church. So I have a few matters for us to consider from these 10 to 12 words at the end of verse 28. The first the man who is God. The man who is God. Did you catch that subtlety from verse 28? The church of God, which he, Jesus, obtained with his own blood. The he has to be Jesus since Paul speaks of his blood. In fact, that phrase, his own blood, is a a phrase used multiple times in the New Testament regarding Jesus' death and our deliverance. But he, if if you notice, it doesn't come out of nowhere. This is the end of a sentence. There's an antecedent. That is, there's something before the he, and it's God. The church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Therefore, he is also Jesus. Jesus is God. We don't need to make the case too difficult from Acts 20, verse 28. This is all over the New Testament. Uh, The more I read the Bible, the more I clearly see the deity of Christ from it and in varying different ways. It's not just John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not just doubting Thomas's words after he sees the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. Hebrews 1 might come to mind that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Or Colossians 2.19, in him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now the inner workings of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and precision 
in talking about that triune God, that's tricky business. I hope you know that. Some Christians know it all too well, you could say, in a sense. And hence, they don't want to give too much thought to it. Because there's some mystery to the finer details of God's threeness and his oneness, some Christians would prefer to keep it a mushy mess. Threeness and oneness, I don't know. That's it. That's the extent of their Trinitarian theology. God is three, God is one. I don't know how. doesn't matter. Go on. What do you want me to do? Some other Christians have tried to oversimplify what it means that God is three and God is one. Some try to oversimplify the complexities with bad analogies. Let me just tell you some that aren't true or helpful. The Trinity is not like an egg that has a shell and a white and a yolk. The Trinity is not like water that can exist in three different forms. And on and on it goes. You can Google a little video cartoon on YouTube of St. Patrick teaching various people, I think, uh, what is and is not good Trinitarian theology. It can be easier at times to think in terms of what God is not like in order that we might clarify what he is like. That's the way the church has often clarified its own theology. Heresy comes along. That doesn't look right. They have to figure it out. And they come to a conclusion. That's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And they have gotten clearer over the years on what God's word has already said. So here's Athanasius writing in the fourth century. This is his creed. And this is right. He said, although he is God, Jesus is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, in one person, two natures, but one person. Now, here's why all this becomes relevant and important for Acts 20, verse 28. Point two, the God who died. Or maybe I should say it, at least for now, the God who died? Question mark? Can God die? Did God die? Charles Wesley taught us to sing so. And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Has that ever caused you pause? Does God die? Can God die? In one sense, we have to say an emphatic, no, God doesn't die. If at the cross, God 
died, then who or what was upholding creation on Friday night and all day Saturday and early Sunday morning? God didn't cease to be. He didn't stop existing. The eternal didn't cease even for a moment. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. In fact, an ancient belief that the Father suffered on the cross in his nature, it's called patropassianism. Who wants to memorize that? Uh, But it's an ancient heresy. It's been condemned a long time ago. That can't be right. We might ask the question then, well, does, does God have blood? And to that we'd have to say no. Jesus' blood is part of his humanity. It wasn't divine blood that he shed. And yet, here we have in Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This verse should make us scratch our heads before it ever makes us clap our hands or raise our arms up in victory. We got to understand the problem before we can understand the glory. And so we have a few options for us at this point. We could whistle Dixie, move on down the road, plopping this verse somewhere in the mushy mess of threeness and oneness. Who cares? Or we could try to come up with alternative readings of the verse, which some people have tried and I won't go into tonight for the sake of time. Or we could try to wrestle with this in a way which will take some mental energy. And I know that's asking an awful lot Wednesday, 7 p.m. But I'm going to presume upon you for option number three, and let's try to wrestle through this. I have a few quotes of thick theology that I think can help if we can track with these careful thinkers. Like, for instance, John Calvin, who is a famously reliable guide on matters of the Trinity. He wrote a big systematic theology called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and he also wrote lots of commentaries, including ones that cover the book of Acts. So here's what he says on our verse. What does John Calvin say on this verse regarding Christ and his blood and how this sounds like divine blood or God's blood? He says, we must see in what sense he says that God purchased the church with his blood. For nothing is more absurd than to feign or imagine God to be mortal or to have a body. But in this speech, Paul's speech, he commends the unity of person in Christ. For because there be distinct natures in Christ... The scripture does sometimes recite that apart by itself, which is proper to either. I know that's thick. If you didn't get it, you can move on and still get his main point. He says, but when it sets God before us, made manifest in the flesh, it does not separate the human nature from the deity. Notwithstanding, because again, two natures are so united in Christ that they make one person that it that is improperly translated sometimes unto the one, which does truly and indeed belong to the other. 
as in this place, Paul attributes blood to God because the man, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us was also God. I know, that's thick, but he he made it clear at the end, didn't he? Jesus is man. Jesus is God. Jesus, in his manhood, shed his blood for us. And he did that as man and God? Maybe maybe his institutes of the Christian religion will be clearer. There he says, surely God does not have blood, does not suffer, cannot be touched with hands. But since Christ, who was true God and also true man, was crucified and shed his blood for us, The things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred incongruously, although not without reason to his divinity. If I could put Calvin in simpler terms, I would simply say, this isn't the normal way we talk about the death, rather the blood of Christ. We don't talk about it in terms of its divinity. We talk in terms of its humanity. That's the norm. And yet, because Jesus is God and man, it could be transferred. It could be, it could be I don't want to say mislabeled, but that's close to the, the French and Latin words that John Calvin uses for it. So let's admit with John Calvin that this isn't the usual way Scripture addresses the blood of Christ as something divine. And let's also follow Calvin's lead on how it might fit with the rest of Scripture. And Paul, of course, isn't a heretic, and we don't have to rewrite or rework this part of the Bible. So here's another reliable guide, someone from our own day, praise the Lord. Dr. Stephen Wellam of Southern Seminary, who is one of our two speakers for our Claris Conference in March 2018. He wrote a big book called God the Son Incarnate. Bear with me. Here's what he says. The person of Christ experienced death through his human nature, including physical pain and the separation of his human body and soul. The divine person of the Son did not cease to exist in the death of Christ, but continued subsisting in his divine nature and in his human soul. But through his human attributes and capacities, the divine son did experience the reality of death, such that he purchased the church, here's our verse, with his own blood. God does not have blood to shed, but what is true of his human nature is also true of God the Son incarnate. Thus we must confess that God the Son died. Now, here's the point of me chasing all this down and quoting it to you and presuming upon your patience at 7.10 now on a Wednesday night. I say all that and quote all that so you can see what Paul says and what Paul doesn't say. This is the Bible. We should at times take pains to try to understand it and try to compare Scripture with Scripture. We should raise questions and seek, if we can, to answer those questions. So, I belabor the point so that we see what Paul actually said and not something he didn't say. 
But then you might ask, well, why would Paul word things like this in this unusual manner here and in this potentially confusing way? And here's my answer. To provide shock and awe about the cross and its implications. You heard that Jesus died. So had most of the Jewish world at the time. Most Americans have heard it today. So what? Well, hear this. The church is what he purchased. The church of God is what he purchased with his own blood. God purchased the church with his blood. Shock and awe. I mean, goosebumps should happen if we understand what that's saying. And even, under, even acknowledging the limits of what we can understand. Consider, for instance, the great need of the cross. I mean, if God did this, what's it say about our sin and how great it is and how huge the fix is that's needed? I mean, be horrified at these words. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Let that send shivers down your spine. Consider God's great commitment to your salvation. Join Wesley in his hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Do you feel it? Do you see something of it? And consider the great mystery of God here from this passage, where we can see some things of the inner workings of the Trinity, of God and man. And we can also come to the limits of our understanding. Once we've done a little bit of proper thinking and probing and standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, then we can and we must land on mystery. It's meant to get us to the edge of our intellectual capacity. And we throw our hands up in awe and worship that God would do that for us. It's sort of like the, the same argument that Peter's making in 1 Peter 1 when he says, you were ransomed from your old futile ways, not with gold and silver or with the blood of bulls and goats. You were ransomed from your sin and your old ways with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul takes that same kind of argument and in just a passing phrase among these Ephesian elders, brings some shock and awe as he talks about the church which God bought 
with his blood. God has shown his glory in salvation through a God-man. Jesus must be man in order to be a proper head and representative of a creation that has fallen, of humanity. Jesus had to be a man because he had to be a substitute sacrifice. He had to be like us. He had to stand in our place. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom. But he must be God in order to pay for the sins of a people which no man can number. I mean, how does that work? How does one die for all unless that all, unless that one is worthy of all? If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this evening, we're so glad you're with us. I'm sure a lot of this is new to you, boring to you, maybe seems useless to you. Well, just hear this then. We're sinners. God provides salvation through a Savior who came to live righteously and die sacrificially in our place. Jesus is the mediator. He goes between. He brings us to God. He, he's the only hope we have. We can receive salvation simply by believing and trusting in what he says to be true and asking him for this gift of grace. Now, once you know that, once you believe that, once you begin to follow Jesus, then you also want to know more of what God's up to and you want to understand what he's revealed in his word. And so one of the things Christians do together is they get together and they open the Bible and they talk about it. And they even kind of debate it. They, they ask questions, they try to get answers. They read books about the Bible. It's not simply that, it's, that we're after an intellectual ec exercise or trying to be intellectually elite. We're simply trying to understand God, the God who's revealed himself in print, the God who has spoken, and we want to know more and know more and know more. And so at times, we will even take an evening like this, and we will quote people from 400 or 1,600 years ago, and we will look at the Bible carefully, and we will try to ask questions and bring answers to bear where we can, that we might know what he's done, that we might see and understand more of what he's said, that we might stand in awe of what he's done and who he is. And so that brings us thirdly to the people who are bought. I think in this half of a verse, you've got the man who is God, you've got the God who died, and you have the people who are bought. It's the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. He obtained them. He needed to obtain them because they had gone astray. He needed to obtain them because they were of Satan in a fallen world. But with this blood, this death upon the cross, he obtained them. They're his. He owns them. 
Not in order to abuse them, but to adopt them and to do good to them. As the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came down and suffered and died. He's made us his flock. He's the shepherd who cares for us. He will lead us home. We are his church. He owns us and he loves us. He's our boss, yes, but he's the bridegroom. He's the vine dresser, which means he'll snip where he needs to prune, but it's for our good. And he wants us to grow. We're in his care. And how do we know this? Because of the cross. The cross was a payment. The cross was a a ransom. At the cross, he was making us his people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He set his love on us. Heaven's praise, according to Revelation 5, has this anthem. They say to Jesus, You ransomed for God by your blood, a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. What wondrous love is this, we sometimes sing. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, Beneath God's righteous frown, he laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible has so many different descriptions and word pictures, metaphors and similes to describe what Jesus did for us on that cross and what he's doing to bring us home to glory. One of those is actually in a meal. In the meal of this, what we call the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, we have a picture of a torn body and spilled blood. A picture, again, of what he did on that cross that we might be forgiven. We deserve to be torn. We deserve to be killed. And he was torn. He was killed for our sins, for our souls. In this meal, we partake, placing it in our mouths and taking it deep inside our souls and our bodies. We receive Christ in a similar way. We put him in. We take him down. We we eat of his body, not in a literal sense, But there's a reason why he said, you must eat of my body, you must drink of my blood. Not literally, but he understood what it meant to receive him. It means to take him in to the full. We need reminders of that. We need reminders of what he did. We need reminders of our need for what he did. We need reminders that we have taken him in and he is ours and we share him together. And that's what we have in this meal tonight.